Hello, it is my honor today to be joined by Baseball Hall of Famer Cal Ripken Jr. Cal played 21 seasons for the Baltimore Orioles, where he collected 3,184 hits and was a two-time American League MVP. Most famously, he broke Lou Gehrig's famous consecutive game streak, finishing with 2,632 consecutive games over more than 16 years. Cal is the keynote speaker for the ASI show Orlando, where he will share stories from his career and illustrate how leadership, teamwork, and perseverance are crucial to success in baseball as well as in business. Cal, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Glad to be here. So, you know, that, that consecutive game streak is obviously the, the defining mark of your career, and the, and the, the trait of perseverance is something that, that is really, the, I think, been the most visible aspect um, of, of, of you as, a, as an athlete. So what I'm curious about, at least first and foremost, is what, what was the source of your perseverance? <laughs> um, it was funny. When I uh, retired from baseball and my career was all over, um, the speakers bureaus came at me and said, uh, you know, you have a wonderful story to tell. And I kept thinking, okay, oh, yeah, what is it? <laughs> and, uh, you know, going through it and, and examining your life is different than actually doing it um, and playing through it. Uh, so when I started to ask myself, you know, how do I define perseverance? You know, that wasn't uh, real easy uh, to define. But I think um, in the end, um, when you discover that you have the ability within your own um, um, your own self, through practice and through uh, your determination, that you can fix things and make things better. You know that uh, that to me that keeps you going. And uh, once once um, I connected the fact that if I work hard enough and I practice and I pay attention and I learn, um, then it's just keep pushing forward because uh, then there's a there's a um, there's a positive that's in front of you. And I think once I once I felt that I did that then uh, all the other challenges didn't become so, many, so much challenge. It was just a process. And I think that's really what you learn. Uh, perseverance is a process. Um, but somewhere along the line, you have to have hope um, that you can do it, that you can uh, – um, every one of my injuries that I had, and I had a number of injuries um, that could have caused me to stop playing. Um, I always looked at them as uh, some nagging injuries, um, and some of them were fairly serious. Um, but I always thought that there was a positive silver lining in that injury. Uh, for example, I hyperextended my left arm one time sliding into second base. The next time up, I couldn't swing a bat. And uh, there was some concern whether I'd have, I could play. And uh, the trainer came out and uh, made sure I was okay. And the first at bat, I went up there with that, this uh, hyperextended elbow. I swung, uh, you know, I made up my mind I was going to swing no matter what. I swung at a bad pitch in the dirt, and it really hurt. I swung and missed. Mm -hmm. Then uh, the next one, I made sure that I got a good pitch to hit, and I put a simple, clean swing on it and hit a line drive one hopper at the second baseman. So I knew I was going to be out, but when I ran down to first base, um, I felt uh, um, one thing. I kept thinking, when I swung and missed, it hurt. When I made contact, it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so from that point on, I got really, really hot. So, so every time that there was some sort of injury, I thought it, it would somehow magically – um, make me stay within myself and, and, and play. So um, the mindset, you know, uh, um, how do you get to the mindset of uh, that you can do it each and every day? And it's learning that, that you have the power within your own ability um, and, your, and your determination to make that happen. 
you brought you brought up your injuries, and you, you don't play that many games, obviously, and you don't get through a baseball season without ha- without having you know without having some sort of injury injury or the nagging injuries that that I'm sure I'm sure really bothered you. So was was there was there a day that you you you've initially felt like uh, that you were too hurt to play, or you didn't think you had it in you to play, and yet you still did? And so and then how did you have some of the willpower to overcome that? There was a number of them. Um, I um, I my elbows. I told you. Mm-hmm. And I got through that, and so I, um, I can leave that story off. Um, I uh, strained my right knee in a brawl. Um, you know, I wasn't involved directly in the brawl, but I was trying to help Mike Messina, who the uh, Bill Hasselman charged him. And I tried to stop the whole uh, Seattle Mariners dugout from piling on. <laughs> and so when I turned towards them, uh, the, gr- the grass slipped uh, in my spike, and I heard a pop in my knee. And so I ended up on the bottom of the pile. And I honestly thought I wouldn't get, wasn't going to be able to play. The next morning, I put my knee on the ground, and I could not even put weight on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was so concerned, I called my mom. And I told my mom, I said, uh, just want to give you the earliest heads up. You know, I hurt my knee in a brawl uh, yesterday. I don't, I don't know if I'll be able to play. And the cool part about it was she lived 45 minutes away, and in exactly 45 minutes, she was knocking on my door. <laughs> and so she stayed with me while I worked out uh, uh, the stiffness and, and gave treatment to myself. And then I uh, went to the ballpark and tried it. Um, uh, and I guess the, the, the moment of truth that you have is, um, um, and I think this is where baseball f- finds you out, the one play that I was really concerned about with my knee was if I had to go to my right as a shortstop, catch the ball in the backhand, and then plant my right knee into the ground and stop my momentum going one way and throw back the first. And on the very first play that I got in, in uh, the first inning, it was exactly that play. And so I told myself, well, here goes. And I stuck my right knee in the ground or my foot in the ground um, to brace myself. Uh, it stuck and it worked. And so I completed the play and that convinced me that I'd be all right. Now, it was painful um, and you have to figure out how do you deal with the pain. I had a herniated disc in my back and this was after the streak was uh, broken, by the way. Um, we were really good beating the Yankees from the first day of the season to the last day of the season. And um, it was one of the moments where I've been accused of being selfish with this streak many times. Right. But I never thought that was true. I, was, I thought it was the opposite of selfish. Mm-hmm. But in this particular case, we were a really good team. And I had, with, had gone through the rebuilding process to get to that point. And I'm thinking, there's no way I'm missing out on this. <laughs> and so I played through a herniated disc in my back, played really well. And we pushed the Yankees back and we ended up winning the pennant, um, you know, towards the end of that year. And so... Uh, I think it's a tolerance for pain. It's a uh, um, uh, it's an ability to put it out of your mind, and maybe it's an ability to uh, um, to look for the positive and not dwell on the negative. So, you know, it seems that from those stories and obviously from the 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 content of the speech you're going to give in Orlando, that you know, perseverance is something that can be sort of you know identified and, and, grow, and, and grown in in people. So, like what, what like what are some of the key strategies that that you talk about in terms of how people can grow their perseverance <laughs> so the way I define perseverance um, when I was really asked one time uh, that they wanted uh, a speech on perseverance and I went out early to uh, Breckenridge locked myself in a cabin for three days and uh, figured out what it meant to me mm-hmm. and I remember um, and I, I la- relate this in the story I remember Derek Jeter um, uh, his first all-star game and it was my 16th or 17th he came up and uh, he was he was soaking up everybody's wisdom, 
and he asked me, you know, how in the world do I play in all those games? And I, and I didn't have an answer for him, so it seemed like it disappointed him. And I remember leaving him, and a reporter asked me, you know, if my record could ever be uh, um, broken because we thought the other one was unbreakable. Sure. And I said really quickly, if I can do it, somebody else can. And then the reporter said, um, what traits would that player have to have? So by defining the traits a player would have to break the record, that became my definition of uh, perseverance. And so that was fun. And the whole idea, and I joke about it uh, during the presentation, is I wanted to give an answer to Derek. I felt like I let him down. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you mentioned you know, you mentioned early on about how, having a, a, a process. So in your playing career, did, did you have that process or like any structures or routines that, that, that helped you, you know, uh, be able to play day in and day out? Yeah, I mean, um, um, and I and I would advise um, you know any baseball player that goes in. It's 162 games. There is a regimented schedule, but within that regimented schedule of when you play, uh, when you travel, and all those things, you need to have uh, a, a way to to get ready. And so routines are are ways for you to get ready to give you confidence. Um, your confidence can go up and down based on how you're performing in the game. And when your confidence is down, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, uh, one of the best players in the game. Um, you're going to go through slumps in those periods. And so the comfort that you have, that you give yourself the best chance to perform in the game, is through your routines. And sometimes your routines need to change, but most of the time you want to get to a comfortable uh, level that I'm building my confidence in the cage, I'm making good contact, um, what works in the preparation that I can take out to the game. And uh, I was very regimented that way with my cage work. You know how how often how how often you took ground balls, when you took ground balls. You know some of your routines. That's what you build your confidence on. And then, if you feel like you've done your homework, <coughs> if you feel like you've done your homework, then when the test happens, which is the game, you feel you feel like you've given yourself the best chance. So, um, I was very routine oriented. Now I know there are some players, uh, you know, the the late great Roy Halladay was one of them who had to be doing, you know, something exactly at this time, and then twelve minutes later doing it at, you know, this time. Were you were you ever that regimented? No. <laughs> you know, I remember Wade Boggs uh, when we we would uh, play in the All Star games together. He had to run his sprints at a certain uh, exact time. You know, uh, getting ready before the game, and he had that down. And his routines were, if I played really well or I got a really great game. I might try to duplicate my same schedule. Like, you know, I might go back to the same restaurant. I'm or, I might order the same food. Okay. I, I try to get up at the same time. But generally speaking, no. You know, once you figure out your routine, it is giving yourself enough time during the course of the day where you're not rushed. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the most important thing to me. But uh, I can see the superstition part that, uh, that we all gravitate to, uh, you know, sometimes um, that, uh, that makes you feel like you're in sync. So this is something I'm curious about, and I think it's, it can only apply, I think, if you're, you know, just like a major star athlete or like you're the, you're the CEO of a major company. You know, you you are the you're the leader of a team that you know has 25 different personalities on it, and along with that, you're dealing with, you know, coaches every day, staffers, media members, all you know, fans. There's there's all all these different people that you're sort of interacting with <coughs> on a daily basis. So, you know, how how did you you navigate all all that consistently? Um. I'm trying to think of, uh, you're right, there are a lot of things that come at you from different uh, angles. Um, uh, um, I think the, uh, 
the thing that was most important to me, especially dealing with my teammates, was having credibility with them. And so, in order to have credibility with them, um, uh, you couldn't you couldn't treat or deal with everybody in exactly the same way. You had to understand who you were talking to um, and who you were dealing with. And you definitely didn't want to um, act like you were only helping them for your uh, uh, so you could take the credit. So uh, trust was important. Uh, when you talk to somebody was important. I mean, you hear stories and you see it on TV where some young kid won't run out of ball to first base. And then you'll see somebody that confronts him in a dugout, a veteran player confronts him in a dugout. Um, I never advocated for that because all that did was uh, it embarrassed the player. And I, did, I wasn't uh, into embarrassing the player to get a point across. Now, if somebody did that on our team, you might wait till the next day. You might be sitting in the training room. You might be in the back of the bus. You might be someplace, and you might say, hey, um, you know, it's hard for all of us. You know, when we just miss a ball and pop it up, that we don't run it out. But if, if that ball drops and you don't make it to first base, that makes you look bad and makes us all look bad. And you just kind of go over the substance of what the point is and uh, even tell them, look, um, I have trouble myself. You know, if you see me do that, come up and tap me on the shoulder uh, and, and wink at me. And so, you know, that's the kind of trust that you're building. But in the end, you want to get them to do what you want, to, want them to do. And so I always believed that you had to keep their dignity, their honor, and their trust uh, in line. Uh, and I was always careful not to embarrass them. Okay, very interesting. So you, you've been involved in, in many business ventures, you, you know, owned, owning minor league teams and leading Ripken Baseball, which is heavily involved in the youth level of the sport. So with, with all that experience, what's been the most important business lesson you've learned since you retired from playing baseball? Well, um, it, uh, it doesn't happen by itself. <laughs> so at first you almost thought that uh, since I lived a very regimented uh, itinerary sort of life in baseball, um, but, but there was a lot of room in between for you to uh, to build your own skills and have your own success. Um, but the team still had to have a roadmap. It still had to have a fundamental um, direction. And I think at first, you know, you want to um, you want to hire all the right people because uh, in baseball, talent rules. So if you can, you can assemble a lot of talent, um, that's the first step. Um, but the most important lesson I learned is you just can't let them. Um, go in all directions. You have to provide the roadmap. You have to, you have to, to set and, and say this is what we do. You have to ex you have to execute to a plan. And I think in the very beginning, we uh, we were we were all over the place. We had some talent and we were making some pretty good decisions. Um, but you really need to sit down as a group, um, and maybe even you, uh, me as the leader or Billy as the leader, provide the direction uh, and and make sure they execute to that direction. Uh, it just doesn't happen by itself. You have to stay on it. You have to be in there just the same way as playing every single day. You have to you have to be there, and you have to uh, um, uh, make it happen as opposed to um, hoping and letting it happen. So you. You know, you mentioned earlier we, we were talking about your consecutive game streak. You know, no one ever thought that Lou Gehrig's streak would be broken, and then you did it. Uh, and now, no, and now people say that your your streak will never be be broken. Um, but you know, what, what I think is interesting is that this this modern era of sports that you know um, teams and you know medical professionals are, are very attuned to how athletes perform and recover. Um, there's, and I, I think there's now a lot of sort of a lot of institutional pull into 
know, teams telling athletes, "Hey, you need you need to sit sit down this game because you're you, because it's going to wear you down for for later in the year." You know, compared to maybe your era where uh, there was, you know, more more of a inclination for teams were looking for players like you teams that you know teams who wanted players to, to play every day to always take the ball and it seems like there's been this sort of shift in mindset among professional franchises so you know that being said like if you consider you know trying to beat that that record would you have been able to do it in in this day and age in, in baseball and professional sports well, well you identified um the environment pretty well about, um, you know, everything is measurable now. You're trying to get the most product productivity out of them. Um, a, a regular player now might be defined as 145 games as sure. opposed to 162. We want to get the best 145 out of this player, and we need to take these, these precautions. Um, and I know that if I look back on my career, if, if I looked at it just for my own production, I know that if I took specific days off and I looked out for myself in those days, that I would have better numbers. I mean, I, it, it's an easy uh, assessment is saying, uh, especially from a batting average standpoint. Um, if you uh, have trouble hitting a particular pitcher on the mound and you know he's, a, well, he's very difficult for you and you're slumping, um, if you took eight, eight to 10 days off a year, you might be taking a, uh, I don't know, a, a eight for 40 off your numbers. <laughs> sure. Or a five for 40. So in the end, if you add that up, your batting average would, would be, uh, um, impacted. So if you look at it from a straight productivity standpoint, I could believe there might be a case to be made to, um, to, but I always thought that was a selfish part of, um, of, uh, taking yourself out so that you would protect your numbers or you would pad your numbers. I looked at it, um, that, uh, there are certain, uh, players on your team that have intangible values to your team. And if you're trying to win in that particular day, you want to put your best lineup out on the field that particular day. And I would even make an argument um, that in this day and age when the playoffs um, have expanded, that you see every year you know, a playoff spot goes, boils down to one game. You know, it boils down to the difference in one game. So you ask yourself, in 162 games, if we would have won a game in April or we won a game in May, we would have made the playoffs. Uh, one more game. So, so if it can boil down to one game, you don't know where that one game is. So each game is important. Right. And so I would go at it saying uh, that each game you're going out to try to win the game. Um, and uh, I think that's just the, uh, the approach. And in this day where they're measuring all these different things and we're in a um, uh, saber metrics and they're, we're analyzing which ones are more important and how do we make our moves, uh, one of the harder ones uh, to, to identify are some of these intangible values. Um, Eddie Murray's present presence in the fourth spot in our lineup, I can tell you because I benefited from it, was crucial. He's a switch hitter in the middle of the lineup, right-handed or left-handed. It doesn't matter if he's hitting or not. He could be 0 for 25, which I don't think he ever was. But he could be 0 for 25, and the manager in the other team, when it comes time for the sixth inning, he's thinking about managing um, when Eddie Murray's next at bat's coming up. You know, and so he Eddie forces the, the manager to think about the game in certain ways, and that that value, his comfort of taking the big role, hitting in the fourth spot, made it easier for me to hit third. It made the second place place hitter feel more comfortable hitting second. There was a balance in that uh, lineup that is still hard to measure. Or another one would be Yankee Stadium um, tie game, eighth inning. 
you were up uh, by two runs. They scored two runs now. Now it's a first and second, no outs, and there's a bunt play. And you need to make sure you execute on your bunt play. But the crowd's going nuts, and it's crazy, and you have a young second baseman uh, out there. It's really cool when you have Eddie Murray walk over or we walk over and talk about it, and we calmly say, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to charge the, the guy from third. But no matter what happens, if we have any question, we need to get an out. So a successful bunt play is getting out at first. You know, we'd like to get the lead runner, or we'd like to maybe turn it into a double play. But if we can't, we got to get the uh, one out so we have we have the ability to walk the next guy and get out of the inning with a double play. Um, and so that presence is uh, is that experience is really valuable to have in the middle of the lineup. And I can tell you that we won many games without Eddie hitting the great the game-winning home run, or without me, you know, hitting the game-winning home run or driving in a hit by just knowing how to play and playing and making the right decision, we were able to win some of those one-run games. And that's the part I think now with analytics, it's hard to measure why does a team win one-run games? Um, and, and I would say is because they execute and they give themselves a chance and they don't beat themselves. Um, but that's not, that's not easily measured. Right. And even, even if you're, you know, even beyond just sort of the physical act of you know, talking to the, t talking to somebody, just for example, just seeing your presence every day in the lineup. If your superstar is not in the lineup, you know I think the the collectively the team in the lineup sags a little bit. But when you know that your stars are in there every day, and like you said, this is this is something that's not can't be really measured at least right now. It it it, it just seems to to buoy everybody everybody and and per, and perk them up because they know that their their stars are there and they have their their big guns who are going to help help them win. Yeah, you know, it, and you just you think about it, a lineup. Uh, a, a similar lineup or people understanding their roles in a lineup against lefties or righties, um, there's a value to that. Uh, we live in a day and age now. You want to look at the stats. You want to look at the matchups. Um, and you probably have stats for uh, each each position in the batting order that you batted. And uh, um, this hitter performs better hitting in the eighth spot in the order. And Sometimes they'll pick the batting uh, order for that reason. There is a comfort and a balance when you have a lineup that works where everybody understands their role in the lineup. And that can't be achieved by constantly changing the lineup, which seemingly um, um, it happens more and more now in the game. Okay. So my, my, my last question is, is about uh, the fact that, you know, you're very involved uh, on the, in youth, youth baseball, but, you know, you hear it, you, you still hear this bromide constantly about how baseball is falling, you know, out of uh, popularity and it's not appealing to, to today's kids. So, you know, do you, do you do you believe that the game has a problem appealing to kids, and then whether it's even playing the sport or or watching it, and then consequently, you know, what can be done to to maintain the the popularity of the game? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's uh, baseball and all sports have a challenge. Uh, um, people are specializing in sports earlier, so they're not trying the different sports. Um, uh, the baseball demographic of people going to the ballpark and consuming the product is uh, is definitely older. And, uh, you know, just just getting in front of the young people so they love the game the way that we love the game. Um, I think some of that's participatory. Some of that is experiential when you go to the ballpark. Um, but there's a lot of things for kids to do now. Um, and they choose to spend their time in many different ways, and they choose to spend their time the way they, they want to. So there is a challenge out there for, uh, you know, working at the kids' level. I still see the honest um, sincerity of kids playing the game and the fun that they have. And, and the numbers that kids are playing baseball are still um, a, a good number. 
Uh, but but other sports, uh, you know, other athletes are taken away from baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes baseball is seen as a slower game, and I think Major League Baseball is trying to address that at the big league level. But I think uh, an education and an understanding of what's going on out there makes the game interesting. Um, it's not quite at chess, but uh, there's a lot of things that go on, and the more you're in the know, the more you, you see how the game uh, is played. So uh, to me... We've worked really hard, and I, and I am on a uh, committee uh, with uh, Major League Baseball, or actually I'm considered an advisor to the commissioner um, on youth baseball, um, where you're trying to look at how do you make the game uh, more fun to the kids? How do you appeal to the games? Whether you change the rules a little bit, maybe you make it more action-oriented. Um, we're all looking at all those sort of things at the kids' level, so you get them trying it and playing it. And once you try it and play it and find that you have an aptitude for it, then you're willing to go a little further. So... Uh, I think baseball realizes that we, we all need to appeal to the young group uh, for future fans, but also, you know, for the sake of the sport, getting uh, great players to not choose other sports but stay in baseball. Yeah, I, I think it's great that, to be, for one, for you to be able to contribute and, and get, give back in that way. Um, you, know, for, for, you know, for millions of fans who grew up loving the sport, it's hard to – it's hard to, you know, say to give it up the the way that they grew up, you know, loving the sport in, in terms of how it's played. Um, but I, I I respect the fact that that you know that the commissioner's office and, and that in your and also your in your work with them that you guys are willing to consider how can we evolve the game to to keep it to, to keep its appeal to the future generations. Well, you know, one of the things that we talked about and we've got a lot of traction and we're testing, you know, and maybe we'll someday we'll have a tournament with these these rules. But uh, if you just think of a game of a six-inning game, and maybe the first uh, inning starts with a guy on first and the count 1-1, the second inning starts with a guy on first and second, the third inning starts with the bases loaded, you're starting to get the point is that you're starting to manipulate the game um, and the counts to, uh, to create more of an action-oriented pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and even, even if somebody can't hit, you know, but they still get a chance to run the bases. Then they're learning an aspect of the game. If you're if you can't hit and you're 0 for 4, and you strike out a couple of times and you go back to the bench and you watch everybody else, you're not having fun at all. Um, but if you can make it a little bit more playground oriented, and a lot of us that uh, you know had free play when we were younger, we created a lot of games with the space that we had to play. That doesn't exist now, so you have to organize that, I believe, for them. And we've had some fun. It speeds up the game. Um, it, it teaches situational baseball like crazy, and uh, and kids learn what to do. Um, and in the format of that game, there's some teaching that can take place. So you might even allow your coach, you know, the coaches in a traditional sense are sit on third base and first base. Um, we like the idea that you have a coach that goes out there and stands in the middle of the field for defense, you know, and talks to his middle infielders or talks to, to them saying, this is what you should do, this is where you should be. Remember, there's a... You're covering first base, you know, remember a, du- a double play, what, whatever the case may be. Um, it's about the learning, but it's also about the action. And uh, so, so we're trying a bunch of these, uh, um, bunch of these games, and uh, we've had some pretty good success. So uh, I'd love to, to create a tournament one time and just say, come on, play by these rules, and let's see who wins in, the, uh, in this type of tournament. Well, wow, I think that'd be, I think that'd be pretty fascinating. So that, I think that'd be very interesting. Um, so th- once again, that once again, you can see Cal at the ASI show Orlando on Saturday, 
January 5th. And Cal, th thank you very much for coming on and speaking with us today. Yes, yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. Now I don't know what to say uh, during the uh, speech. That's right. I'm, I'm, sure you'll, I'm sure you'll have pl pl plenty to talk about. So th th thank you very much. You're quite welcome. Thank you. Okay.